Hello and welcome to the Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about the 2022 Oscar nominations and the Best Picture contenders, including Drive My Car, Coda, and several other films that almost nobody has seen. After that, we'll be joined by Julia Yaffe to discuss the Russian invasion of Ukraine that didn't happen or hasn't happened yet, or maybe it will, I don't know. Julia will answer that for us. And finally, Dylan Byers will be here to share the latest about CNN's former boss, Jeff Zucker, who is being mourned on air and on Twitter, even though he is, fact check, not actually dead. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy the powers that be. I'm joined right now uh, during a big week for Hollywood. Uh, The Oscar nominations were announced. And Matt Bellany is here to explain what big narratives are, maybe who the front runners are, what these nominations actually mean, whether or not we care about who wins them. Matt, one of the things that jumped out to me was that Netflix got 27 Oscar nominations, uh, more than pretty much every other <laughs> platform distributor. Disney was was right behind them. But Apple also got its first major nominations at the Academy Awards. Can you just walk through what I'm thinking here, which is that over the last few years, these awards have just become a, a, a big pissing match and a rivalry between the, the tech platforms. And, and are we going in that direction? I think absolutely that is a narrative. And it's only become more so during these kind of pandemic times where most of the movie watching is being done via streaming services. And you saw it this year. I mean, Netflix was actually down a little from what they got last year during the real pandemic. Oscars, but 27, including 12 for Power of the Dog, that they had the most nominated film. Amazon got nominations for being the Ricardos for the actors, although they did not get picture and screenplay as some people expected. And Apple really planted a flag here. Tim Cook even tweeted about the Oscar nominations on Tuesday because Coda, a film that they spent $25 million for at Sundance, which was more than any other film in the history of Sundance, ended up getting them a ton of nominations, including Best Picture. That's actually my favorite of the year. Um, It's a really great film about a deaf family and the girl who is a child of deaf parents and wants to be a singer. Um, That was probably my favorite movie of the year, but it was available on Apple TV+. Plus not in theaters. So it really is this kind of pissing match, not to mention the fact that even the traditional studios, something like Warner Brothers, which has been a traditional theatrical distributor and and a big player in the Oscars, their movies this year that were nominated for Best Picture, King Richard and Dune, are both available on HBO Max and have been so since the day they were in theaters. So it really is this narrative of the streaming companies wanting to be players in the Oscars because that's how you distinguish your movies and your shows on these platforms that have thousands and thousands of titles. You know, everyone has a new movie every weekend now, but only HBO Max can say, we have two Oscar-nominated films that you have heard of and watch them this weekend. Netflix could do the same, actually, because they have Power of the Dog and Don't Look Up. So that's a very powerful marketing message. And that's why when you look at the campaigning that goes on for Oscars, because this is like anything else, a political campaign that lasts from about September, mid-September, all the way through the Oscars in March, millions of dollars in advertising and promotion and media 
is spent to get these nominations. Netflix and Amazon and Apple are now some of the biggest spenders in that category because they recognize the value of these nominations to their platforms. So I want to talk about Apple TV Plus uh, and and pivot to something else out of that, which is uh, I didn't see the tragedy of Macbeth and I, I want to. I love the play Macbeth. I love Denzel Washington. I love Shakespeare, but I just don't have Apple TV Plus. And I am an elite streaming consumer who wants movies like these. And it just these nominations and the fact that the the tech platforms are playing so big in them feels both symptomatic of and an accelerant of you know the fracturing of of these awards and their relevance to the the population as a whole i mean there are no longer any sort of mass market hits other than maybe dune that get nominated for best picture <laughs> anymore and you know and then so like the emmys the globes the oscars you know, Hollywood always felt somewhat distinct from the rest of, of culture, but, you know, the monoculture no longer exists. Everything is fractured. Everything is on streaming platforms. And it, it just feels like, you know, and maybe this is a Dylan Byers topic, but the ratings for these award shows diminish year by year. And it's not necessarily just because broadcast TV is withering. It's because how many Americans out there are seeing, you know, CODA <laughs> or Belfast, which is my best picture. Uh, of the year. You know what I'm saying? Like, do you disagree with me? In other words, that the, the I, I totally agree. content is remote from America. <laughs> you raised about 10 different topics there. And the, and the, <laughs> the, the first one is the Oscars are facing a relevance question uh, because of all of these issues that are working against it. If you look at the 10 movies that were nominated for Best Picture, they gross less than $200 million at the domestic box office. And half of that was from Dune. So the other nine movies nominated for Best Picture grossed less than $100 million. And most of those were either not available in theaters at all, which are the Netflix movies that only play in L.A. or New York for awards purposes, or they were available day and date on a streaming service like King Richard and Dune, um, where you have the option to see it at home the same day as we're in theaters. And that changes the calculus entirely because... There is no monoculture. There is not a consensus. There used to be people who would go out and see all the Best Picture nominees before the Oscars so they would have fun watching the show. That's actually harder to do now because they are so fractured. You have to subscribe to all these different services. You can't just go to your local AMC and see all these movies. And, you know, add in the fact that there was a pandemic going on. A lot of these movies were released in the December corridor where Omicron was a big deal and movies like Belfast and West Side Story really suffered because of that. Um, West Side Story is a huge bomb financially, you know, cost about $100 million to make. It was a big Spielberg production. And at least in the U.S., it did in the 30s. And that's a complete disaster. I mean, that movie would have opened probably to $30 million in normal times. But we are not in normal times. And the Oscars are really suffering because of that. Yeah, I mean, I was just uh, thinking about a, a random year from the 90s in the Premier Magazine era, <laughs> looking up who was nominated for, for Best Picture in 1995. And it was Forrest Gump, which won, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, and Shawshank. And, you know, most adults have seen all of those movies, with maybe the exception of Quiz Show, and can probably even quote from them. And... Now you could pull any random person aside on the street and maybe they've seen one or two, maybe they've seen three and they're, they're all different. They, they won't even know what it is. If you ask the person on the sidewalk, what is licorice pizza? 
they'd probably give you some quizzical stare and think that you're trying to sell them some new candy or something. I don't know. It's, it's just not, it's not the same. <laughs> yeah. My, my awareness of these films and nominations is juiced by just living in LA. I know this is just old hat to you, but you know, I lived in Washington for 10 years and you'd be on the subway and you would see ads and posters for like the American Petroleum Institute or, you know, you know, some ad place. Netflix, Netflix, similar company. Yeah, it's true. Lobbying DC. <laughs> exactly. No, but you know, drive around LA and you see billboards for these films and television shows and you read the trades and you see the names of these actresses. You know, I know who Alana Haim is from the band and, and the movie, but you know, Joe Schmo in Cincinnati doesn't really care that much. And the other thing you pointed out is I think you could ask a lot of people on the street, when are the Oscars? And they wouldn't even know. Like, I, you know, I'm just thinking back to 15 years ago, people would get together with their friends and family and watch the Oscars maybe 20 years ago. And you would know, like it was, it's award season. It's on in February at some point. And now it's like, what? I don't, maybe I'll watch it, but maybe not. It used to be the second highest uh, rated show of the year behind the Super Bowl. Really? And, That's crazy. And last year it got beaten by the Westminster Dog Show. So no that way. tells you a lot. Yes. <laughs> so that, that tells you a lot about what's going on. And, you know, uh, the Academy itself has really failed to address this problem. And they're actually pretty actively going in the opposite direction. Because if you look at what has happened because of the Oscar so white controversy about five years ago, the Academy underwent a pretty dramatic remaking of itself to try to diversify which is objectively a good thing. It was overwhelmingly white, male, older people that were voting on these films. But one of the consequences or one of the impacts of that diversification effort was that they invited a bunch of international members. So there's way more members in Europe, Asia, all over the world that are now voting on these. And what happens is it's reflected in the nominees. For the past few years, there's been an international film that has made it into the Best Picture nominees. This year, it's Drive My Car, which is a very good three-hour kind of grim drama from Japan. And people who see it love it. And it's very deserving of a Best Picture nomination, according to everyone who's seen it. I have not. But that is not a mainstream film that the average moviegoer who goes to the Cineplex on a Friday night will have even heard of, much less seen. So that is contributing to the, I don't know, I don't want to say lessening. It's, it's just different. It's just becoming a niche product like everything else in media that is appealing to a smaller and more rarefied or niche audience. Yeah. I mean, even me, college educated bubble dweller in Los Angeles, didn't know what CODA was until you forwarded me the nominations <laughs> on email the other day. You should, so. you should subscribe to Apple TV. I think you'd like it. It's, they've got some good stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I've watched some some of it on um, airplanes. And my mom gave me a uh, uh, shared her password with me. So I need to take advantage of that. Matt, uh, thanks a lot, man. Uh, we will see you next week. All right. Thank you. Coming up, I talked to Julia Yaffe about Vladimir Putin and why she thinks the odds of Russia invading Ukraine are now a coin flip. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know, the real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand the most important stuff happening in our culture today. 
And when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters, to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at www.puck.news. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I am joined right now by Julia Yaffe. And Julia, uh, your expertise is obviously foreign affairs, specifically Russia and Eastern Europe You know, has a special or not special place to your heart in your heart. (laughs) I want to ask you about the ongoing situation in Ukraine along the Ukraine border, because we talked about this a few weeks ago. And as news cycles go, it was the biggest story in the world (laughs) for a week, it felt like, or at least the way the American media covered it. And then it sort of receded into the background a little bit. The ground is, is frozen over there, but it also feels like this stalemate (laughs) is frozen. Is Putin actually going to invade Ukraine? Is he going to invade Ukraine in a way that we're not thinking of? Or is he just going to hang back and dangle the threat of invading Ukraine over us for months, years until Biden leaves office? I mean, how long is this standoff going to happen? And is diplomacy working in any way? Hey, you got it. You don't need me for this. (laughs) Okay. All right. You, You perfectly summed it up. I mean, that's the state of play. And Personally, you know, so I was at um, on Monday night, I went to a little cocktail hour at the British ambassador's house here in Washington, D.C. And there were some people from uh, Congress there and the think tank and diplomatic world. And this is what everybody was talking about. And everybody was like, you know, like 80, 20, they're going to invade 70, 30, they're going to invade. And I don't know, I personally... I'm now on like 50, 50. I was at like 80, 20 before Then I went to 60, 40 invade, not invade. And now I'm at like (laughs) 50, 50. I do think that to your second question, he's going to do something, but we don't really know what, and it might be, you know, a quick strike. It was funny. Um, I was talking to Seth Moulton, Congressman Seth Moulton, who was at this event. And, you know, he's a former Marine who served in Iraq. And he was like, well, I'm looking at the map and I'm thinking the northern border is barely guarded. Northern border border of Ukraine and right across is Belarus. And there's a ton of Russian troops gathered there ostensibly for exercises. And he's like, I'm looking at the map and it's obvious he's just going to go right into Kiev. It's like an hour's drive. There's good roads. Don't even need the ground to be frozen unless you need to like fan out, go in quick strike, destabilize the government, maybe replace it with a more Kremlin friendly government and then get out. So it's like an invasion, but not an occupation. I was like, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) It could be a massive cyber attack. It could be nothing. I mean, our listeners will see it. have a piece coming out this week that is talking to um, kind of a Russian foreign policy insider who is very much in the kind of diplomatic establishment of Moscow, but is a young guy, super reasonable. He doesn't, he's not like foaming at the mouth, like the kind of guy you see on Kremlin TV, Kremlin propaganda. And he's like, I don't, I don't think we're going to invade unless like all these catastrophic things happen. Like we're doing this to negotiate because otherwise you guys don't pay attention to us. You want to pivot to Asia. You want to like, you think we're a declining power. You think that you can just wait out our concerns. So if, since you guys aren't hearing us any other way, 
we're doing this is not to get an audience with Biden. This is to get our concerns taken seriously and to fundamentally reorganize the security infrastructure of Europe in which we are always at the table. That's so interesting. I was reading a piece in the New York Times and the, the Times quoted a professor at MGIMO. How do you say that? MGIMO. <laughs> the elite Moscow uh-huh. University run by the Russian foreign ministry. So this is a sort of pro-Kremlin voice. But the quote, the quote from this professor at this university said, it feels like exactly what you're just telling me that quote, what's important is the suspense, this feeling of pre of a pre-war situation. People are spoiled by an overly long piece. They think of security as a given as something that is attained for free rather than something that must be negotiated. That is a mistake. I mean, that feels just straight up Putin from the last 20 years, like just reasserting ourselves. We are not going anywhere. Stop treating us like we are no longer a superpower we are here to stay. And I think I think a failure of foreign policy, of media, of politics generally is, is a lack of foresight generally. And you, we tend to view things through old frameworks. So, um, you know, this isn't to say this is going to be a new Cold War, but it does feel like it, the the kind of lingering threat idea is something that Putin is trying to hold on to and promote. Yes. And, you know, when you mention the, or you or Americans or Europeans mention the Cold War, they invoke it as something very bad uh, that we are very glad is over. When the Russian kind of establishment talks about the Cold War, they don't see it that way. That was kind of their peak. They were a superpower. They were taken seriously. They, you know, it, the, in the in the Russian parlance, they made the weather, and. Putin laid this out in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference, and he said, right now, we're living in a unipolar world where there's only one superpower, the U.S., and it's just running roughshod over everybody, creating chaos everywhere. Remember where we were in 2007, right? Iraq had just really gone to shit. Uh, Afghanistan was slowly going to shit. And Putin was saying, like, This is what happens when you have only one superpower. Back in the Cold War, when you had two superpowers, there was a balance of power and they were constantly checking each other. Uh, Of course, this neatly elides the issue of proxy wars everywhere and coups everywhere, both, uh, you know, sponsored both by the U.S. government and the Soviet government. But that's kind of what they're trying to get back to. You know, we say, oh, no, tensions have never been higher since the cold war and and the russians are like that's right it's great because they think that that provides more security than when there's two superpowers and i guess china but they still see them especially like russia is very still fundamentally as much as they're cozying up with china they're still very european oriented some of that is racism some of that is just history and culture but they see themselves as the other main guarantor of security or insecurity in Europe, along with the U.S. And the U.S. can't be calling all the shots in Europe anymore. Russia has to be at the table. That's why they're talking about creating this, what they call collective security in Europe, which to my mind would just recreate kind of the 
UN Security Council where they just veto everything. But they're saying like, you can't decide European security without us. We all we have to be at the table for every single discussion of European security. And you can't, you know, provide Poland security at the expense of Russia or Estonian security at the expense of Russia. We ha- should have a say in Estonian security, right? And And you saw this play out so beautifully, and I use that in quotes, this week when Emmanuel, French President Emmanuel Macron flew to the Kremlin, had his little Neville Chamberlain moment where he was like, that's right, we need a collective security. We, ha- we can't do European security. Wow, without Russia. you just called Macron Neville Chamberlain. Okay. What's up? What's up? <laughs> but he, yeah, he like, he just repeated kind of Kremlin talking points. And then he announced, you know, he leaked, his people leaked this thing that he got Krem- uh, Putin to agree to withdraw troops from Belarus. And before he's even out of the country, the Kremlin spokesperson comes out and he's like, what? Who's France? We only deal with one person. We, we only deal with one country. We deal with the U.S. Like France is in no position to make any deals with us. So they see it as this like Yalta moment, Yalta 2.0. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yalta was, you know, as you recall, the famous conference in Crimea at the end of World War II, where Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt sat down, carved up Europe into spheres of influence that's what Russia wants. And they want that same level of power. And they think, again, when American diplomats say, look, we're not deciding the future of Ukraine without Ukraine. We're not deciding the future of Europe without Europe. The Russians are like, sure you are. We're about to. Let's do this. We're the two big boys. We're going to carve this up and it's going to be great. And it's going to be Cold War 2.0, which is what we want because we had a lot of power in the Cold War. So just as a brief interlude, um, not everybody gets to go to the British ambassador's residence for a cocktail reception at a moment of high stakes diplomacy. What kind of like food and drinks do they serve at those things? And I'm asking because I'm hungry right now. Like what's the finger, what's the finger food at the British ambassador's residence? Take one guess. Uh, Biscuits. No. Finger sandwiches, cucumber sandwiches. Come on. Uh, Pim's cups and cheese. No, they had these little cones of fish and chips. It was adorable. Really good. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah, it was like these little little bitty bites of fish and chips and some other things. But I thought okay, that was okay. Cute. I just I just I wanted to peel back the curtain <laughs> on that uh, the drapes rather. So yeah, give us some more color from in there though. I mean, you said there were members of Congress, diplomats. Uh, I assume some some spies, whether you knew they were there or not. Uh, what 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 else did you pick up from that little shindig? It was me. I was the spy. Um, so what, what was interesting is um, I finally got to meet the British ambassador, Karen Pierce, who I've heard about. And she is, man, she's a powerhouse. And she's like, um, she kind of reminds me of like a 19th century general, you know, like she always has a map in her head. And she was just like, I was talking to her about how this could go. Uh, what scenarios she envisions. And she's just like, you put in a regiment here, you move them there, da, 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 da. And I was like, you know, over some champagne, I was like, wow, okay. But what struck me is how there is this kind of divide in Europe again, that the British, uh, especially under this, you know, conservative administration are in total lockstep with the Biden administration. If anything, they're like, even more 
kind of gung ho about going hard on Russia. You know, you had the current the Liz Truss, the foreign secretary of uh, the UK, say in Parliament that you know if Russia invades, we're going to seize oligarchic assets in in London. We're going to go after these guys, and and you know, embassy officials at this uh, party were all echoing that. There were I was like, well, how do you do that? You guys have private property rights and you have an independent judiciary, which is like whole reason that Russian oligarchs park their money there because they don't have that stuff in Russia. And they were like, we'll figure it out. We'll make up some new laws. We're, we're done. We're doing this. Uh, we'll see if that happens. But it was interesting to see how serious they were and how, again, how in lockstep they were with the Biden administration. Uh, but you're seeing, you know, Germany and France on the continent kind of taking a softer line. Olaf Scholz, the German, new German chancellor, said he's in total agreement with the Biden administration, which is trying to get him to publicly commit that if Russia invades Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 is donezo. And he and he would just say, yes, we're in agreement. Yes, we're in agreement. But he would never say the thing, you know, and then you have Macron parroting Kremlin talking points and thinking he's going to solve the world, uh, solve this whole crisis, even as, you know, the Kremlin's cutting him off at the knees. So it's interesting, again, to see this kind of division between the Anglo-Saxon, you know, if I if I were seeing this from Moscow and this and these are the categories they think in, they see, OK, the Anglo-Saxon world, i.e. the UK and America are in one camp. And then you have the continental powers, Germany and France, who are a little bit friendlier to us. And can we use that as leverage against the Anglo-Saxons? That's literally how they think. They're like, oh, the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> well, that's, that's, something, <laughs> that's something else that's important when talking about Putin's long game is Europe. And you would know better than me, but Russia in particular, just have a long sense of history in a way that the United States doesn't. You know, it's like. Not, not that they are referring to people as Teutons and Anglo-Saxons. It's just that, you know, that is a continent that has been through centuries of, of war. Countries have been drawn and redrawn and the U.S. has been around in history for a blip. And, and you know, Putin just sort of thinks more that way in the sense of yes. empires rather than yes. um, fleeting democracies that could be redrawn or collapse here and there or that or that just vacillate you know from electoral cycle to electoral cycle yeah um right, right. and make one treaty then the next administration pulls out of it but I, but you're totally right and given that history despite the wars that russia has fought with france in 1812 and with germany in 1914 and in 1941 there's a lot of shared culture and history there the Russian aristocracy really only spoke French. They weren't very good at speaking Russian. They spoke French. There is a ton of French words in the Russian language. The Russian military was built, the imperial military was built on the German model. Most military terms in the Russian language are actually German terms. Those uniforms you see that, you know, we think of as like Soviet with those round hats. Those were like Prussian military uniforms. They were just like copy paste Prussian military uniform. And so on one hand, Russia wants to deal with the only the other big boy in the room, which is the U.S. and that they're an Anglo-Saxon, but they're more simpatico with the, you know, the French and the Germans because they have centuries of shared culture and a kind of different understanding 
And, and these are also countries that have been at, at war with each other and have spilled each other's blood in great volumes. And I think that's, that's another kind of division that we're seeing there. Um, okay. Powers that be listeners come back next week where Julie and I will talk for 20 to 30 minutes about Fabergé eggs and the czar. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hate them. They're so ugly. <laughs> Thank you, Julie, for really explaining this very well. And I am going to go online and look up a recipe for how to entertain people at the Super Bowl with little fish and chips cones. That sounds delightful. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Coming up, Dylan Byers will swing by to discuss what else? The latest on the Jeff Zucker drama at CNN. Stick around. Hey, it's Peter Hamby. Along with my colleagues, I want to invite you to check out Puck.News for the inside story, what's really going on in our culture. It's only $100 a year, which is a steal. Consider buying a subscription for your smartest coworker, or maybe just yourself, today. Check us out at Puck.News. Welcome back to, as they say in cable news, the C-Block of the powers that be. <laughs> I'm joined now by the man who basically put puck news on his back over the last couple of weeks, Dylan Byers, who really, I think, led the charge on the reporting about Jeff Zucker's tumultuous exit from CNN. You had lots of scoops, lots of detail from inside the room, from the players who really matter, as we say at our new media startup. Dylan, as of this taping... Zucker has been gone from CNN for about a week. And exactly a week. Exactly a week. Are CNN anchors okay? Do we need to send some, some therapists <laughs> over there? Because the the airing of complaints from CNN's talent against Jason Keelar, um, who you know basically fired Zucker for violating the company's code of conduct for having a relationship with a subordinate. You know, Zucker was a very good boss. He was a good boss when I was there, when you were there. He's good with talent. Um, and so good that they are talking about him as if he died. I mean, every segment <laughs> you see on reliable sources about Zucker, you know, he's talked about in the past tense. Uh, I think Allison Camerata said he didn't deserve the death penalty. I mean, people are people yeah. are very sad about this over there. What's going on? Well, first of all, Jeff Zucker is not dead. Uh, okay. He is he is spotted uh, by a source of mine uh, this week at the Core Club in Manhattan, where he is taking meetings with, uh, among other people, uh, Ben Smith, the uh, former New York Times media columnist, now launching his own media venture. I wouldn't read too far into that. I think it was a social meeting. I don't think Jeff Zucker is going to go join Ben Smith and Justin Smith's new company. But he is Jeff Zucker is alive. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and well, well enough under the circumstances. Look, I think let's, there's a sympathetic view in terms of the way that CNN talent has been handling this. And then I think there's a more critical view. Let's start, let's start with the sympathetic view. I've been covering media for more than 10 years now. I have never, ever seen this outpouring of grief and devastation and frustration following the ouster or resignation or firing of any media leader. So when you have guys like Jake Tapper who are saying it's as though 
Ben, it's like the day Ben Bradley left the Washington Post, or you have the interim leadership saying that none of us could ever really replace Jeff. And he's the most important person to CNN after Ted Turner. I think we have to be respectful of that and look at that and say, okay, whatever Jeff's successes, whatever his failures, whatever his faults, whatever role he had in boosting up Donald Trump, and whatever role he had in sacrificing the integrity of the brand for ratings, at the end of the day, he commanded an incredible level of loyalty and love and respect from his staff that is unlike anything I have seen in the last decade of American media. And that is real. It is widespread. It certainly exists among top-tier talent and top-tier producers and top-tier executives. And when you get down to the rank and file folks I've talked to, it's not necessarily ubiquitous, but there's, it's pretty pervasive there as well. So that's very real. And that is a testament to, to Jeff Zucker's leadership. I think a more critical view would say, okay, but you guys are journalists and not only is Jeff not dead, but he actually did something wrong. And Jason Kylar couldn't have forced him to leave the company if he hadn't been in violation of company policy. And the frustration in week two has sort of gone to levels that make you sort of shake your head or do a double take about what the standards of CNN journalists are. For instance, one senior, one, one senior vice president or some high-level producer at the company suggested that it might have been a good idea to keep Jeff because he was a big earner and he was so valuable to the company and that an exception should have been made. Uh, which is like, okay, that's, it's not a great, it's not a great look. And there is just this sense that maybe as journalists that they should think about how they might cover this story if it weren't their own boss. And they should look back, for instance, at the fact that a year ago, Jeff Zucker wanted to promote Alison Gallist to take over for him if he left the company. And that if you if they were to see something similar happening where the president of Fox News was trying to promote the person they were having an affair with, then maybe that would be covered differently by CNN journalists if it had happened at Fox or if it had happened at NBC. Well, yeah, Dylan, just to just to interrupt on that note for one second, a piece of criticism I would add about CNN's brand over the last few years is they have spent a substantial amount of time not talking about. Afghanistan or the Uyghurs or poverty, uh, but about Fox News and how bad Fox News is and how much they have betrayed journalism by rooting for Trump. And the scale by which CNN fluffed Andrew Cuomo was much smaller than the way Fox rooted for Trump, but it sure. it contradicted their their look and their brand. And I think CNN, I think you're exactly right that their own journalists would cover another network in a much different way if it wasn't their own boss. Anyway, continue. Yeah. And I think, no, 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 that's right. And I think that we, you and I have discussed together and on previous podcasts for the new ownership that is taking over CNN, David Zosloff and Warner Brothers Discovery. What is, and by the way, that deal has now been cleared by the Justice Department. So that will go through and it will close in, in the second quarter of this year. What is the value of CNN to the Warner Brothers Discovery brand? And it really, it's not, taking on Fox news. It's not getting up on your high horse as a, as you know, as a host of a primetime show or a morning show, the value of CNN to the Warner brothers discovery brand is that it 
is the only truly global news network. And that if you, if you as a, as a subscriber to a streaming service or a linear subscriber, still a cable subscriber, believe that you want to have access to news, CNN is increasingly the only place that can do it for you. And all of this stuff, all of this sort of internal, the, you know, which I love as a media reporter, but which, you know, the reporters themselves should have bigger fish to fry. That is what CNN needs to get back to. Now, I do think there's an element here of the frustration, which actually gets to the, the real journalism. And it's one, I think, in the Washington, D.C. meeting that I believe it was Jim Shudo who brought it up. But he basically said, you know, this is a very perilous time for the news industry. And we are we are we are staring down the barrel of some very big stories. You know, there's the situation in Ukraine, Europe on the precipice of war. There's the ongoing coronavirus. There are the midterms coming up. And of course, there's the lingering vulnerabilities of the news media in the wake of of Donald Trump and, and the feeling, you know, the sort of feeling that the media feels like they're somewhat under attack. And to strip the company of its leader and someone who is very much in the trenches with them and to leave them how they feel, which is effectively rudderless, or at least like they don't exactly know who it is that has their back and whether anyone now at the organization has their back as much as Jeff did. That's a perilous place to be. And yeah. so I think, I think that part of that frustration actually isn't just about, oh my God, we love Jeff. How could you get rid of Jeff? You should have made exceptions to the rules and to the ethics for Jeff. There's actually a real fear of like, look, what we do every day is important. We do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had a captain and and we trusted him and we did whatever he said. And now he's not there. And what are we supposed to do? And that that's real. I think the what you touched on with the Jim Shudo sentiment is very real. And, and we talked about this when we recorded our emergency podcasts last week about Zucker's exit when it first happened, but I, I started working at CNN in 2005 and it was a time of, of great disruption for lack of a better word in, in the media. Uh, you know, YouTube was invented the next year. The iPhone came out in 2007, but like the month I started was Katrina and Katrina to me, I mean, I still have the Peabody award behind me that CNN won in 2005 for covering Katrina and really it represented why, I could be proud to work at that place, which was we had reporters everywhere. We were innovative. We we invented the sort of video wall that you now see across television news. And, you know, over the subsequent years before Jeff Zucker came in, it did start to feel like CNN was a little adrift if you worked there. We didn't have a clear point of view politically like the other networks, which was a source of pride, in fact. But leadership was sort of quiet. You know, John Klein and Mark Whitaker after him made some changes around the margins, but Jeff was always, you know, he's on every morning call, driving the morning call. He would email you late in the evening, early in the morning to say nice things, to say good story. Or I watched this piece. Like, did you think about this angle? Right? Like that was the positive side of his management. And, you know, I was texting with a friend who's a correspondent there the other day. And I asked him, you know, sort of, making fun of the public mourning that the CNN staff have been doing. Has democracy collapsed yet over there? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. left. And this, this person wrote back to me, democracy will endure, but morale has certainly collapsed. People whose careers were made by Jeff are on the warpath. It seems incredibly petty of Keelar and destructive, unless there's more we don't know involving the Cuomo's. That's a reference to 
whether there are or are not more emails about Jeff advising Andrew right. Cuomo. And then, you know, this person said they weren't freaking out, but you know, they do think that it's kind of bullshit. And look, I think some of the loudest voices you hear complaining about this are exactly what this person said. The people whose careers really took off under Jeff Zucker, you know, Alison Camerata, Don Lemon, Tapper had a, Jake Tapper had a career before CNN, obviously, but he's become a, you know, probably an even bigger voice. And like, these are people who were given a long leash by Jeff Zucker to maybe flex their journalistic chops, but also like drift into opinion journalism. And, you know, if CNN does pivot back to limiting opinion and focusing more on just the news, which I think they can do and they should do, you know, those people feel they might not be safe. And then on top of that, as CNN gets into streaming and developing shows for CNN Plus at a time when ratings for traditional television are collapsing, Jeff made them feel good about what they were doing and made them feel safe and protected in a world that kind of doesn't need them as much anymore as it did, say, back in 2005 when Katrina happened. That's right. And and I would say that set aside what the editorial product of CNN looks like. If this is a less if anyone outside of the media industry is looking for a lesson here or, or, or to take away from this, as much as brands can survive, big brands like CNN and The New York Times can survive leadership changes and continue to be what they are. And by the way, you know, CNN's interim leadership has tried over and over again to stress this point, as is Jason Kylar, is CNN is bigger than any one person. It's bigger than Jeff Zucker. Fine, true, fair. But at least I, I will say for me, and I think this is true for a lot of people, who you work for matters and who is leading the company matters. And when the person who hired you or cultivated you or was a mentor to you leaves, it can suck the wind out of the sails. And in fact, my entire, I mean, just to speak from personal experience, anytime I've worked at a media organization where the leader of the company left, I made a pretty quick move to get out of there. Because that leader is the person who you trust. That 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 is that is the person who is telling you where things are going and letting you know that they have your back and providing a sense of direction and a sense of purpose. And Jeff did that for a lot of people. And new leaders and often you, want to bring in leaders want to, on the flip side, bring in their people and their deputies. Bring and, in their people and their, and, their, and their vision and their vision and their way. And 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 too often new leaders make the mistake of believing that if they don't do something differently than their predecessor, then they aren't really making their mark and demonstrating their value. And I think that whoever takes over for Jeff Zucker, the smartest thing they can do is recognize which aspects of leadership they should not change and what they should emulate in terms of what Jeff Zucker did. So what's next for both Jeff Zucker, Dylan, and what's next in this, in this saga? Because- yeah. Tapper was was quoted in that DC meeting, you know, essentially saying that Chris Cuomo was holding the network hostage and he was being a terrorist by threatening to sort of blow the place up. Um, is there are there are there other things to come here, or is the story just dead and we we can finally move on from it? Um, what's next? No, it's not dead. Um, just because you know I'm gonna just keep be kicking the dead horse into the ground, but no, it's not it's not dead because. 
first of all, you have this Warner. For, it's not dead for CNN because the fear and anxiety and anger continues to this day and will continue for some time. You have the Warner Media discovery deal closing in the next few months. And I'm told by sources close to the leadership over there that they will um, they will announce the new leader of CNN at close of deal at the latest. They might even announce it before the close of the deal. So I think there's going to be a lot of people waiting on pins and needles to see who that is. Uh, we wrote a piece earlier this week that looks at potential successors and well there are a lot of well, well there are a lot of names in that piece none of them seem to be exactly ideal in terms of checking all the boxes that jeff checked so i i think that this is going to be an ongoing story for us certainly through the close of the deal and until we get a really coherent understanding of what it is that david zaslav wants out of cnn and, and who that new leader is and then i think for jeff i think jeff is going to continue to feel his own sense of frustration. And I think he was going to continue to take meetings. And I think at some point he will have a third act. He had a storied run, uh, you know, at NBC universal and became the head of NBC universal and then fell. Our colleague, William Cohen has written, Bill Cohen has written about that uh, this week. Then he had this storied run that we've all observed as the, as the president of CNN. And he was poised for perhaps an even greater role in David Zaslav's new company, but now he's got a, he's got a third eye. He's just too much of a you know he plays to win. He's competitive, and he's just got a drive. I don't see him just sort of like hanging up his hat and and you know living out the rest of his years in silence. I think there's a role for him. And and by the way, I would say this collective mourning and frustration at CNN that we've talked about has only played to his hand in terms of setting himself up for that third act because. The overwhelming impression you get if you read the CNN coverage is this guy was great. He didn't deserve to be so mercilessly ousted from the company. That was a mistake. We all miss him. He's a one in a, once in a generation leader. That That is the exact narrative you want out there if, if you are trying to set yourself up for a third act. And so, I, you know, I think he'll be fine. I just don't know how he'll be fine or what that will look like yet. But we we shall see. I'm going to do something right now and channel the questions that I imagine my friends at CNN would want me to ask you right now, which are the interim leaders of CNN are Ken Jouts, Michael Bass, and Amy Antelis. Uh, yes. Really liked all three of them when I worked there. Honestly, all have yeah, different skills. All sets. good. Um, and they have promised that, and they, they love Jeff too, and, and said, even though Jeff is gone, we're going to continue his vision, whatever that means. So, you know, you wrote this piece about the Zucker succession race and some of the names you floated were uh, a couple CNN people who, and this might make sense, uh, you know, who could carry on Jeff's vision. They wouldn't come in and shake things up. They worked under him um, and would and know how the place works. So, you know, Andrew Morse, the chief digital officer who's running CNN Plus, I mean, that sort of seems like a possible logical successor here. You mentioned Virginia Mosley and CNN's Washington Bureau, although you said she has neither the business savvy or the staff loyalty to sort of take over the show. Yeah, although I should I this is this is a perfect point to to, yeah. to point out that there were some notable DC names who reached out to me afterward and said she has more she has more love and loyalty in the bureau than you think. So well, that's that's sort of what I was going to say was like she and and Jeff really like liked her. But she when I was there Virginia definitely felt like a creature of the Washington 
world and this is a global news organization. However, another source of pride when I worked in the Washington Bureau was that a lot of the network's content and reporting comes out of DC, you know, and that became especially too during the Trump era. But the other, the question I wanted to ask you though, was you also mentioned people like David Rhodes, who ran CBS News, Chris Licht, um, who, you know, sort of got a lot of buzz inside the TV business when he, yeah, he he would be a dark horse, developed morning show. He's never run it. He's never run a a media company or a news organization, but he is a star executive producer. Right. And then you mentioned, um, Jay Suris, the, the Hollywood power agent at UTA, (laughs) but anyway, who, who represents a lot of CNN talent anyway, is it more likely in your mind that the new honchos will bring in someone like, a David Rhodes or Chris Licht, or are they going to look internally to sort of make sure that the talent are happy and just find someone that Jeff was yeah. close to? I, I mean, what I would love to do is just tell you right now that I know the answer to that question and sound like I'm really plugged in and authoritative. But the truth is, if I'm just being honest, is I don't know. I don't know what David Zaslav wants to do. The fact that I don't know the answer to that question is indicative of just how hard a decision that is going to be, because all of the folks you mentioned, they check some of the boxes, but they don't check all of the boxes. And the role of CNN president requires a lot of skill sets, linear experience, digital aptitude, business savvy, because you have to make global deals and you have to acquire and keep talent happy. Those relationships, that sense of loyalty that Jeff had, and then the ability to program like a producer. All of these things are extremely important to the job. You could split duties, but it's never good to split duties at a, at a media network where you have to make decisions under the gun. You can deputize some things, but really you want someone who understands all of the different aspects of the job and is in a position to, to lead. So yeah, you've got guys like Ben Sherwood, David Rhodes, and they fit, they understand the legacy TV business. And you've got guys like Andrew Morse or Virginia who are CNN insiders, but neither of whom are really can do everything that Jeff did. And then you've got a guy like Jay Suris who, who laugh if you will, but he's got better relationships with the talent there than anybody other than Jeff Zucker. And that's obviously emerged as a very important part of this business. And he also has that sort of ultra competitive killer instinct that Jeff Zucker has. So you basically, you have all of these candidates, none of whom check every single box. And I think until I have a better understanding of what David Zaslav actually wants, which I don't yet, I'm not, I'm actually not in a position to answer that question. And I wish, I wish that I could, because I understand it would probably help a lot of people at CNN out right now. But I don't know. I don't know yet. You might disagree with me, and I'll I'll let you go after this because we <laughs> only you and I can talk about yeah. the internal workings of CNN oh, forever, man. like this. You're like um, twelve hours left in the day. Let's keep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of itches to scratch. Um, my, you know, I was talking to Bellany earlier about my best picture pick, and I, I I'm I want Belfast to win. Um, my dark horse, maybe it's not even dark horse. Like, why not Amy and Tellis? I mean, Amy. When I worked there, like she, look, everyone in the TV industry is going to have critics and people who go on background to snipe behind them. Amy was close with Jeff. She gets talent. She has a master's in journalism from Columbia. Not that that ivory tower stuff matters that much anymore, but it does to me. But she's also like a really good content brain. I mean, she, Jeff gets credit for the Anthony Bourdain 
thing, but that happened before Jeff came in. Uh, Mark Whitaker and Amy and Tellis did the Anthony Bourdain deal and, and did the W. Kamel Bell deal. Like they started to pivot CNN into more documentary content. And as they develop CNN Plus, she has the chops and the relationships to create content that isn't just like pundits yelling at each other on a panel. I mean, she, I think she's a co-producer of this documentary about Julia Child being Julia. And in other words, right. I just think she has a combination of skill sets that that could work at that place. So I, th- I think, first of all, I think Amy Intellis is, is of immense value to CNN. And she does have a few important things. The relationships with the talent, that's her. She's got that. The sort of part of CNN that is becoming more and more important to CNN Plus and, and the Bourdain type stuff, the film series, documentaries, that sort of thing, that's her bailiwick and she's she's great at it. And, and in terms of like people seeing CNN beyond the news and the sort of like taste making aspect of like, you know, we've got Alison Roman, we had Anthony Bourdain, we've got Eva Longoria in Mexico. All, all great. The problem is, is that's still not core to what CNN is, which is the news business. And she has increasingly removed herself from that business. And, you know, I would also say that, you know, I don't know. I, first of all, I don't even know if she would want that job. And secondly, I don't I don't know how much longer she's going to want to, you know, stay at CNN. And I think, you know, I think she's in her 70s and she might want to move on soon. She's incredible. She's awesome. She's valuable to the company, no doubt. But I don't see her and I becoming of the three interim leaders. Would I say she'd probably be the best to take over the the whole ship for a very short period of time? Yes. But I don't I don't see her doing it. I don't I certainly don't see Ken or Michael doing it. Uh, if you are one of the four to seven listeners of this podcast who made it all the way through me and Dylan's uh, <laughs> dissection of the the Byzantine byways of CNN's uh, executive leadership, DM me and I'll send you a, a, some puck merch in the mail. Um, <laughs> you get a tote. You get a tote. Dylan, thanks for uh, kicking ass on this story and keep it up. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.